Prosers, I am back with you. I know I'm a few days short of a week, but that's okay. I am back and I have a new episode featuring Gita Kotari. She is the nonfiction editor at the Kenyan Review and she also is a teacher of English. She has had her nonfiction published in a number of places. You can see all of those and uh, on her bio on the show page and check her out, follow her on Twitter and all that good stuff. But today I'm going to talk to her about her book, I Break for Moose, which was just released on Braddock Avenue Books. It's a collection of short stories and I really enjoyed it. It's gotten really good reviews. So let's go behind the pros and figure out how she did it. Here's Gita Katari. Essentially, I would like to know how did this book come about? Um, was it right. a series of stories written through the years or did you do it specifically for this book? Yeah, so short answer, it was a series of stories written over the years. Um, mm-hmm. I had no idea it was going to be a book. And because um, I'm such a slow writer, uh, uh, the short stories, they just took forever. So some of them were written a really long time ago, and some of them were written more recently. Um, I've, I've been to the Kenyan Review Writers Workshop as a student a few times, and that kind of helped to jumpstart. Um, some of these stories. So um, that's the short answer. Uh, slightly longer is I started to put them together in a collection in about 2012. I kind of did that intuitively because they don't, to me, go together in the way we're taught collections should go together. You know, really clear uh, sort of visible things that, that signal the stories belong in one place. How did you find yourself at Braddock Books, Braddock Avenue Books? Yeah, um, I submitted the collection about 15 or 16 times um, in the over the course of two years. And um, the book placed in a contest, it was a finalist and um, the Flannery O'Connor from Flannery O'Connor Award. And I happened to work with one of the publishers um, at Braddock Avenue, but I didn't think they were the right house for me. I thought they mostly published um, books set in Pittsburgh, you know, very highly identified Pittsburgh writers, and I didn't see myself as one. And I just mentioned it in passing to him, and he said, you should send it to us. And I didn't. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I think the object lesson here is how to get out of your own way. Um, Mm -hmm. I didn't for a year. And and there are a number of reasons I didn't. I mean, I didn't know him very well, but we did work in the same department. And I thought that could be awkward if they decide not to take the book. Um, And again, also, I just, wasn't sure what he was expecting. I mean, was he expecting a collection of Pittsburgh stories? I had no idea. So I waited, and then a mutual friend of ours kind of pushed me into it. I mean, really pushed me into it. And again, it was that you have nothing to lose. And and really, I think when we're afraid of rejection, that's really the time when we should say, well, I have nothing to lose. I mean, mm-hmm. I wasn't going up for an Oscar. <laughs> there was nothing public about this, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's when I finally sent it. I thought, mm. okay. I mean, it's not every day that anyone asks you to send them your work, you know? True. You, can't, you really can't just dismiss people. Um, and so, you know, I did. I got, I, and I'll be the first to admit, I got very, very lucky in that moment. I mean, we could have gone an entire year without, ever talking about my writing because it wasn't hmm. something I talked about generally hmm. with people in the Xerox room. <laughs> <laughs> that that reminds me of um a story that I met a writer at um at party for some New Yorker Daily Shouts writers and he was talking about Dr. Seuss's origin story, which I'm probably gonna butcher, but after he had been rejected like 27 times he was walking down the street and ran into someone he knew who happened to be 
at a publishing house. And it's like, oh, if he was on the, you know, other side of the street, he wouldn't met him. But it seems to be like a combination of timing and talent that come together. Yeah, it is. And, you know, I worked in publishing, so it wasn't like I didn't know people in New York. There was a period in my time where I, a a period in in my life where I knew a lot of people in publishing, but I didn't have anything to send them. And um, I think, you know, one of the reasons I hesitate in talking about this story of how the book ended up with Braddock is because I know there are people out there going, oh, well, she knows people. That's how she got published. But um, I do know that they get a lot of books and they publish very few of them. So I think, you know, it is always a combination of both serendipity and being prepared. Mm -hmm. You know, um, like I said, it, it could have been, we could have not had that moment. And I don't know if he would have asked for it if I hadn't said, well, it placed in the Flannery O'Connor Award, right? And Mm -hmm. so, you know, there's there's something about that. So I don't know. I just think it's it's not a good idea to turn down people when they ask to see your work. When you said you were going through the process before Braddock, the 15 or 16 times you were submitting mm-hmm. directly to publishers via versus trying to get an agent. Yeah, I was not. I, I actually had an agent at that time, but he did not um, deal with short fiction. Mm. And um, I knew that this collection would be best placed at a small press. Mm-hmm. So I started to look for small presses where it would fit. And I also knew that I wanted a house that would care about the book, that would put effort into it. So, you know, I that, that, that really encouraged me to, to think about small presses because small presses do put effort into their books and they do care in a way that the big five in New York can't. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that um, that that's how I went about the submission process, and I entered a lot of contests, and um, I knew the book would be difficult to place because um, it it doesn't the stories don't come together in an expected way. Like you can't just put a stamp on it and say. Indian Americans, um, you know, uh, look mm-hmm. into their lives or whatever, because that's not all that it's doing. So I knew that would be hard for some readers. Mm. Um, you know, I figured it would be, especially in the screening process for contests, that that um, readers come with their own expectations. And um, there is the expectation that if you're an ethnic writer, you ethnic in quotation marks, you write out of that space. Hmm. Um, I just, I I was listening so much to what you were saying. I wasn't thinking about my question. I don't know what I was going to ask you. (laughs) Kind of enjoying that moment for a minute. (laughs) Um, About contest. You said that you did enter contests. I am curious to know what's your opinion on entering contests that have an entry fee. Right. So um, I look at the press and I think, is this entry fee supporting the press in some way? Um, I can live with that. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I, for uh, literary journals, I look to see if they are, um, if, if I'm going to get anything in return, like a um, subscription, which mm-hmm. is great. It's a great way to get a subscription. You send into a contest, and so you lose, but you still get a subscription out of it. That's a win-win for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I'm not overly concerned about it, but, you know, I work full-time, and I have a job where I make money. Um, that 
and I make a good salary. So that's why I can afford not to be concerned about it. If mm-hmm. this were 1988 when I was working part-time, I might be a little more concerned. I might not have been in the position to submit a book. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think, you know, I think for, for a reputable small press, if they're asking for money, they're not doing it so they can party on the side. You know, there's there's a reason they're asking for it. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, necessarily to make a profit at this point. And so I'm quite happy to, to throw in that support. Now, there are some presses where I think, mm, you know, you don't strike me as people who are really interested in an open call for submission. So why are you charging money, you know? Mm-hmm. But most of them, when they do that, I think it's to really cover administrative fees. It means that at some point the administration has become unmanageable. Now, that said, I'll tell you, Kenyon does not charge a submission fee. I know this is also an issue with literary journals. We don't charge a submission fee because we make it very hard for people to submit their work, especially people from other countries. Um, mm. it, it would become onerous, right, with the exchange rate being what it is. But, you know, Kenyan can afford to do that. Some smaller journals can't. So mm. I get it. You know, I used to walk to the post office and pay my dollar fifty two times to send in manuscripts. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a whole lot easier than doing that. Let's talk a little about your writing process. Okay. You said that you were a slow writer. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I think I mean that everyone else is faster in my head than I I, you know, I have, there are some stories in this collection that I really struggled with, you know, literally wrote out by hand on legal paper, two pads of legal paper, just writing and writing and writing and writing and writing until I got the structure. And there are some stories where the structure was kind of given to me as a gift. In either in the form of a prompt or a story came out. And those were definitely um, did not feel like they took as long to write. Now, you know, slow is relative, right? It's only if you're comparing yourself to everyone else that you really feel slow. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think that's it. I, I, I don't know what the bar is. I mean, I don't, I don't know what fast looks like because I've never particularly felt fast, but I think people looking at me from the outside might think, oh, my God, she's just churning out one story after another. You know, like I'll go through these phases where several things will get published at once. And, you know, they all have been sitting in my computer for years, and suddenly I decide I'm going to send them out, and there you go. So it looks like I'm publishing a lot. So I don't know, but yeah, I do feel like it takes me a long time sometimes to understand what a story is about at its core, and mm-hmm. I need a lot of time between drafts. I need less time now that I'm older, I'm happy to um <laughs> which is good because, you know, less time now that I'm older, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> tell you, I tell you, I tell you. <laughs> So that's good news for people. The older you get, the faster you get. You get smarter about your writing if you put in enough time. Mm. You do get smarter mm. about it, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, do you have then a scheduled writing time? How, how do you approach that? Yeah, so it kind of depends on what my teaching schedule is at any given time. Um I would love to tell you that I write every morning from 5 till 7, but the truth is I don't really get out of bed until 7.30 or 8. So um, I'm not one of those morning people. Um, I try to schedule, but I do try to schedule morning time for writing, you know, and I do try to write every day, but there's some days where that isn't going to happen. And I've kind of learned to make my peace with that. I can't go several weeks without writing. 
it just doesn't feel right to me. So, you know, if I have a week at work with a particularly busy, I might say, okay, I'm going to block out three hours on Saturday. But I do need to write regularly to make that three hours work. Well, you know, honestly, Keisha, I, it might just be half an hour in the morning before I go to work. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'll do. Do you have a regular writing time? No, I've been trying to get one. Like now I've last few last week or so I've been up early um, just mm-hmm. because school stuff takes over the day and I get frustrated. It does. So, you know, I'm trying to see if I can do it in the morning, but as you said, it doesn't always work like that. Yeah, I I mean, I, I really envy people who are morning people and can get up at five regularly and just work mm-hmm. because I do think that's the best time to work. I really do. Um, I just, if I get up at five several days in a row, I'm wrecked on the eighth day. You know, mm-hmm. I just. I just can't, and, and um, I, it, so I do think trying to find a regular schedule, especially if you have a heavy teaching load, is really important, and like I said, even if it's 15 minutes a day, one of the things I do is um, I use the Pomodoro method. Have you heard <gasps> of this? I love it. I fell in love with it last summer, or the summer before last. Oh, my goodness. I love it, too. And I have one of those cute little cube timers from Amazon, which I'm utterly and totally devoted to. I love it better than my timer on my phone because it's so oh. it's so cute. I have to send you a picture. Yeah. Oh, we're going to have to put that in the show links. It is so, it's a physical thing. And I use the Pomodoro method, and I have to tell you, that is the one thing that works all the time. Mm-hmm. I live and die by that thing. And I use it now for teaching, for writing papers, for everything. Um, I just work more efficiently. I totally agree. I find that when I don't use it, um, 50 minutes or go by, and I'm like, oh, uh, wait, 20 minutes. What did I just do? Like, I have not, uh-huh. I don't know what I did. Exactly. And I think if you're you're trying to write while you have a full-time job, it's really important to have some kind of tracking for yourself. So mm-hmm. even if you're just picking off little pomodoros three times a day, that's great. You know you mm-hmm. spent your day well. Mm-hmm. Do you know about this thing? I hope this isn't off topic, but do you know about this thing called the productivity planner? No. I I'm going to have to send you a picture of it. It's got little bubbles to track your pomodoros in. Oh. You can list your most important tasks of the day. You list your totally most like if this was the only thing you did today you'd be satisfied that's your most important task of the day and then that's number one and then you have your secondary tasks and then you have additional tasks and it doesn't let you list more than five (laughs) and it has this tracking for the bubbles and it's so much fun to just fill in the bubbles when you've done one pomodoro I don't know. I love it. Wow. Yeah, definitely going to put that in the I show. We're going to convert something. everyone to Pomodoro technique. <laughs> <laughs> so that's so what I do. I'm going to transition a little bit to talking about uh, the craft and the book. Um, uh, so many places where I want to begin. I guess I'll start with your style. And and so I'll say things that I think I observed, which could be accurate or might not be accurate. (laughs) And you'll kind of just tell me uh, ideally what you think of that. Um, In terms of the style, I feel like the stories um, are written. They start out with like a narrow focus, a moment or a scene. And then there's this expansion where we learn more about the characters and whether it is in time or in that moment. And then it kind of returns to a narrow focus. Mm -hmm. Uh, Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it does. Um, I think especially in the stories where I'm trying to leap beyond, like to give them more of a historical context or, you know, um, a wider context. I, I think my inclination is to go big, right? Mm-hmm, I really mm-hmm. love writing big 
and short stories are all about the moment. And I think that's always been a hard balance for me. So, yeah, I do think that. I think you're right. How do you determine when you break into flashback or exposition from mm-hmm. the scene? So what I, this is something I learned at Kenyon. And um, one of the things my teacher there, Nancy Zaffers, was really um, good about teaching us was to really um, use as much of the objective reality of the story um, to stay with it as long as you can and to not just sort of break into interior monologue monologue or um, exposition um, right at the beginning. Because I think for me, that's my inclination is to do that. Like when I'm drafting, Mm -hmm. you know, pretty soon we're off in the person's head and they're, flashing back to two years ago and six years ago, and now you know why it took me so long to finish stories. So um, having, really forcing myself to to focus on the things, like the objects, the things that are in that moment, and then using those as a way to think about the past or get into the past has been really helpful to me. Mm. That actually is going to make me flip to page two and look at something I wrote down. You do this thing. I I've, I started calling it sort of the roundup uh, mm-hmm. where you have a technique of listing details um, in the, in description. So for example, in the story Waterville, um, mm-hmm. there wasn't a single place to sit clothes piled high on the sofa and chairs, books on the, Books in piles on the door, a wicker stool on the coffee table, a ceramic fish lying on its side next to a stack of old newspapers. And then in flight attendants, you have a similar um, a similar moment where one of the characters is remembering his mom, and it's all that remained of her was a red and white uniform, a canceled passport, and a pile of unlabeled photographs. Some of them discovered discolored Polaroids with the color bleeding into the white edges. And that technique stuck out to me as a really engaging way to bring the reader more into the the moment with the character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I um and interestingly, I think both of those stories were written in the same time period. Um I you know, in Waterville, I I don't even actually I'm trying to find the story in the book and then can't really see it where it is, but um, I don't. I don't think I knew for sure what was going on with that mother. But when the daughter arrives and she sees all the stuff, it starts to tell me more about the mother, right? And mm-hmm. that gives me a way in to the mother. Um, I don't know why I decided the house would be a mess, but the moment that decision is made in the external reality or the objective reality, it starts to tell you more about the person who lives there. Mm-hmm. And as a writer, I think you're always looking for opportunities. You know, I always tell my students, if you give yourself the time to describe what's around you, you're giving yourself the opportunity to learn more about the people in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, and the more specific you can be, the more information you have. Now, I don't think you need to keep all of that. I can be a little self-indulgent with those details. I know in drafts, you know, pages and pages and pages of, you know, description. Um, but I do think those can, can help move you on to the next page, right, or the next mm-hmm. sentence. I heard you say that um, uh, as a writer, you made a decision at one point when um, writing Waterville. And some fiction writers I've talked to reference that when they write, the characters sort of come alive and mm-hmm. take over. Do you experience that phenomenon when you are Ooh. writing a story? I don't know if they take over. I think the story tells you who they are. You know, um, I was talking to someone close to me who thought she recognized one of the characters in the story from someone in my past. And I said, you know, 
I didn't think about that person specifically, but all those details are in your head. And when you're writing and the pressure is on you, this is why the Pomodoro method is so great, right? You only have 25 minutes and you mm-hmm. just got to work in that 25 minutes. You, you sort of grab for whatever's in your head at that moment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I, you know, the, this language about characters taking over is kind of mystical, and I don't like to mystify the writing process. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do think intuition and um, sort of gut plays a part in the process. Um, but I don't feel my characters take over. Maybe that's a flaw on my part, but I kind of feel like I'm always reading my work for it to tell me who these people are and what they're going to do next. And often I don't know, hmm. but does that mean they're taking over? Or does it just mean I'm being dumb and I need to hmm. step away from the page for a couple of days and sort of let things... I do think that overthinking isn't really helpful, right? That when you start psychoanalyzing your characters and overthinking who they are, that doesn't really help. So maybe that's what people mean by characters taking over, that you just follow what they're going to do next on the page. Mm-hmm. So in terms of that, I'm going to trend, take that further into some of the physical descriptions or feelings that you you um Mm-hmm. put on the page. So in the first story, The Spaces Between Stars, you write, uh, the inside of her skin itched and she wanted to jump out of it, leave behind her body in the pervasive smell of dead fish. So does a sentence like that come to you on the first draft? Uh, no. <laughs> no. So tell me I how it comes little... to you. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> um. I think it was a lot more, I mean, okay, I'll tell you where the itch came from. I just had this image of this guy scratching his skin. Um, And I just thought, I need to use that image, but I'm not writing about a guy in his skin. So, um, no, a sentence like that doesn't come to me immediately. In fact, as you're saying it, I'm thinking, did I actually write that sentence? Mm. Uh, You know, um, I think it just, uh, the feeling comes to me, right? And I think I want to write about the feeling. But Mm. quite often, I don't have the language to write about it. And it's a question of just trying out different ways of getting it across. Mm. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Another one of those moments, and this is a, a simile in I Break for Moose, which is the title story. Um, you say she looks like a ferret, dark eyes ringed hollow with thick eyeliner that never seems to smear. Oh. And I, so, so vivid. And I just wondered, again, same type of question. Was it on revision? Um, or... It was on revision. Mm-hmm. It must have been because I'm thinking as you read that sentence out loud, who wrote that sentence? Surely it wasn't me. (laughs) And when the the last part of that um, graph is her skin is sallow, washed out like salted cod, soaked for too many days. And I was just like, what? (laughs) Like, who is that? You can see what it looks like. Like, Yeah, I just, um, so... That's the story. That particular story took me many years to write. And Mm. so every time I hit it, I was hitting it with at the sentence level to try to get it to work at the paragraph level, at the character, you know, I was just going at it. It it honestly felt like I was hitting my head against the brick wall. So if I could get a good sentence, I would be very, very happy. The salted cod, I will tell you honestly, um, I had been traveling in Newfoundland at the time that I wrote one of these drafts. And so I had cod on the brain and I desperately wanted to write a story about fishermen in Newfoundland, but that wasn't going to happen. So I think that's Hmm. just how that image made it in there. That's where my brain went. And I also have friends who 
soak salted cod in their basement. Hmm. Um, preparation for either Easter or, or Good Friday or Christmas. Mm. And, you know, it's dry and you salt it to remove all, and you soak it to remove all the salt. And I don't know, that just struck me as kind of, I, I could just see it in the basement, you know, just sitting there all white and pale and bleached of salt. And I don't mm. know, that stuck with me. So, but honestly, sometimes these things are just in my brain and they're just looking for a place to go. Um, and like I said, in, in the moment, you'll just reach for what you have, and sometimes it'll work, and sometimes it won't, and you have to take it out. Mm. One of the lines uh, about your characters in Waterville, going back to Waterville, is mm-hmm. you write on page 100, and we were talking about the brother of the one of the characters. Jamie. He, mm-hmm. Yeah, Jamie. He was good at that finding weaknesses, picking at them until the structure gave. And the reader feels like this is not just about the fence, which was the physical Mm -hmm. thing the character was Mm -hmm. referring to. So I wondered if you do character sketches when you write? Sometimes. Sometimes Mm -hmm. I do. Um, This one, I think I was just actually really interested in um, that fence and how I could use it as a metaphor, but I don't even mm. think it was that well thought out, but it mostly, you know, I'm thinking about how Jamie is so different than Maria. He's responsible, he's a doctor, she's a waitress, and she's still getting naked with the chef, and, you know, just kind of the opposite of him. And so um, I think I was just there kind of looking for an opportunity to both um, signal her resentment of him and also mm-hmm. characterize someone who's off stage and has no reason to be on stage at any point in the story. I was really looking for a quick way to get their relationship in there, but not dwell on it. Mm. And again, draft. Draft. draft, draft, draft. <laughs> Did you do any research for any of these stories? In particular, I, I started to wonder that when we got to the flight attendant story. (laughs) So that story was completely inadvertent. I mean, I had gone to a small airport in Ontario. Some friends of mine took me there. It was tiny. I mean, it wasn't an airport either. It was an airport with a museum on the premises, I think. I'm actually not sure. There might have been, like, single engine planes there, but we didn't look at those. We went into this museum, which was in an old hangar, and um, a lot of the imagery comes from that, but um, the idea of a flight attendant school, you know, I just wanted to write a story about flight attendants, so I invented the school in Gander. Um, You know, again, this was a trip to Newfoundland I took many years ago, um, I just really wanted to set a story there, but, you know, we've been in Gander for like two days, maybe I think we spent a day or two days there. It wasn't a big, you know, a long trip. And I knew that, um, I knew I wanted to set a story there. I just didn't know what it would be like. And this story actually, to be completely honest, comes from a crazy prompt that Nancy Zaffis gave me in class one day, and she doesn't even remember it. She gave me, an, I don't know, am I revealing how the sausage is made? Is the book going to lose its That's magic? what and we're here for. Tell us more. <laughs> <laughs> I will tell you exactly how the story came about. She gave me, so you know those page-a-day calendars with, like, mm-hmm. cooking tips or, mm-hmm. you know, so she gave me a month of page a day, uh, page a day calendar, a whole month of golf tips. And she said, you have to write a story using the language of these golf tips, but it can't be about golf. Hmm. And that's how that story came about. I was hmm. like, I had no, I honestly, listen, I had, I went home, I went back to my dorm that night. I was petrified, and I thought, how am I going to pull this off? And, um, you know, 
the way that workshop is set up, and I don't mean to sound like an advertisement for it, but it's something to keep in mind when you're trying to do this for yourself, is you get a prompt in the morning, you have the afternoon to work, in the evening you go to readings and eat dinner and all that stuff, and then you maybe have a couple more hours to work before you go to bed, and the next day you have to show up in class and read what you wrote the day before. Oh. It is. Oh, yeah. It was high pressure. And um, I always joke that the first year I went there, I was so scared, I wouldn't even go out for a drink. Like, I, wouldn't, I was just in my dorm the whole time working, so I was so petrified. Um, but for this book, for, for this particular story, I think I had one beer, and I went back to my room and I thought, got I don't know how I'm going to do this, but I've got to do it. And I, I honestly don't remember. I wish I could find my notes. I don't know where my notes are from that period. But um, mm. it just I was grabbing at all the stuff in my head. I didn't have my journals with me. I couldn't go through all my notes. I just, but I had taken notes. I had taken notes when we traveled to Newfoundland. And I did take notes at this weird little museum we went to. So I could remember, because I don't remember anything unless I write it down. Even if I don't check the notes later, I'll often remember the thing I wrote about. So I just was sitting there in my dorm by myself, and I was like, mm, I guess I'm going to write about Gander tonight. And mm. I gave this woman this language, and then I realized she was instructing people, and I thought, let's make it a flight attendant school, which doesn't exist. Hmm. Oh, what? Okay, that's particular school. I I was like, wait, I think... No, that particular school doesn't exist. There may be other schools, but that one doesn't exist. Okay. Um, When you were... One of the stories, Missing Men, has a timely aspect in it, a timely reference. Um, Kamal's book is about uh-huh. a wall between Mexico and Texas. So I was wondering in your editing process, was that a more recent story or did you go back no. late, you know? That story it? comes from the novel I didn't sell. And really? that novel, yes. And that novel was drafted many, many times. I only want to talk about it. Um, but that story was published in 2005. And this is exactly how it appeared. Wow. I, yeah, I had no idea. Wow. In fact, I didn't, as I was writing it, I was thinking, this is preposterous. This will never happen. I can't even believe it myself. How's a reader going to believe? It? Wow. That's yeah. crazy. Isn't that crazy? I know. I look at that story and I just kind of feel sick inside. <laughs> Because mm. it sounds like, I, I, as I read it, I'm like, oh, okay, this is kind of, she's drawn inspiration from what's going on today. <laughs> no. uh, uh, nope. I don't even know where I got that idea from. Honestly, I don't. I think I was mm. like, well, I got to publish something. So it's going to be mm. this book about this wall and it's going to be a super top secret wall, but I don't know why. Yeah. Hmm. In, in, in just, just so I don't sound smarter than I actually am. Um, mm. I I wrote this around, I mean, this was all during the Bush years, right? Mm-hmm. 2000, 2004, you know, all that period of time. So there, there was a lot to be anxious about. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there was Guantanamo. There was all that language around 9-11. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it it was there. It wasn't mm-hmm. it wasn't all made up. It was all there. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the wall was just kind of incidental. It just but maybe that's just the logical place you're gonna go when you've made everyone an enemy. Hmm. Um, I want to ask um what you know, you saying that actually makes me want to go reread the story. And for a lot of your stories, uh, when I got like towards the middle or towards the end, I want to go back and mm-hmm. reread because of the way the narrative develops. It's 
it you you find out well this might sound redundant but you find out more information as you go along but the way the stories start you know sort of so little the reader knows so little and then mm-hmm. when you find out you're like oh wait and then you go back and reread with your new information it, mm-hmm. I don't know if that makes any sense to you whatsoever but um I, I found myself doing that and being really intrigued with how you were able to parse out the storylines as far as going, you know, flashbacks to the present and um, position, et cetera. Well, I think I really struggle with that. I mean, even, even as you're, yeah, I do. Even as Are you're you? saying that. Are you I'm kidding me? <laughs> wait a minute. Cause I had to do a diagram for one of the stories. I know you did not just, I was like, wait, wait, how'd you do that? Like literally I had to outline like, how did she remember? How did she do that? Oh, I see. And I'm hearing you. Let me tell you how I'm hearing this. I'm hearing this like she withholds information unnecessarily. And then when we get to the end, we have to start all over again. So I'm hearing like, um, you know, the voice of the workshop scolding me for not letting oh, no. into the story. But, you know. This is the I voice thought, of somebody trying to figure out how do you manage multiple like time frames in right. such, it's just such a. It's it's almost and I don't want mystical maybe not the right word but it's almost a um it it it's 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 a magical because I can't I don't I it it's it just blew my mind. Well, it is something I totally struggle with, Keisha. Honestly, like if my first instinct is to to always defy chronology in some way, and mm. I do this when I write fiction, nonfiction. Like if I can start with a flashback, I will. I know that doesn't serve me well, it doesn't serve the story well, and it doesn't serve the reader well. For for the way I write, I need to be, I need to be really strict with myself about what the chronology is within the story, right? I need to mm-hmm. understand, and I need to understand the moment the story is happening in. And so this goes back to that question of the objective reality. And I feel that once I've established that, I can start to understand more about the past of these characters. But, you know, I I think there are some people, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. I don't spend a lot of time talking to people about this, to be honest. But I do kind of feel like, for me, having a, a structure really, really helps. And it can be as artificial as anything. But if I know, for example, the the flight attendant story, I knew it was going to take place in the school. I knew there was a test coming up. Eventually, I knew that he was studying for a test, that he had to pass this test. And so that gives it a place to go. It gives the story a place to go. You know, it, there's an urgency there if he's not going to mm-hmm. get it right. I think if I have those elements at, after the first draft, if I can find them in the first draft, um, I, it, it's better for me. And it allows mm-hmm. me then to slow down at the beginning and not give the whole story away, you know, because I, I, I tend to get a little anxious um, and I want to make sure my reader's comfortable. So it's really important for me to know that there's a place as I'm progressing where I'll be able to let them in more. But, yeah, I I kind of feel like I really struggle with that. I really do. Um, you know, I, I, I really benefited from just, just going back to school as an adult, like an older adult going to this workshop and just learning a different way to look at my work. I, it's, I'm just still shocked that you say you struggle with it because I, I thought it was seamless and I even started to try to make like larger connections. I said, well, it's like the way the reader feel, the way the reader feels at times, like it reflects, I think, what, how the stories are sort of about like displacement, maybe like Mm -hmm. they are, and, and you, you're kind of, 
you and through the narrative you're displaced in time with these characters mm-hmm. and through their feelings and I was like oh wait that's kind of that's what the book is about I do feel it's about displacement but I I honestly have to tell you that is a theme that emerged after many years for me and hmm. I write about displacement a lot in my nonfiction, and I don't think I realized that it was coming up in the fiction until this collection came together and I Hmm. started seeing how people, how my readers were responding to it. And I thought, yeah, all those people feel pretty uncomfortable wherever they are, Um, you know. But who wants to read a story about people who are comfortable? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, How do you know? Even, go ahead. It wouldn't even be interesting to me to write, you know, someone who was totally comfortable in their setting, mm-hmm. unless they were going to get uncomfortable really quickly. <laughs> <laughs> How do you know when your short story is finished? Yeah, um, I don't. I just <laughs> take it as far as I can. Um, mm-hmm. I I have a couple of readers. I give it to them, but I do try to take it as far as I can before I give it out to readers. And then at some point when I feel like I can't go any further, you know, um, where I feel like I've done the best I can with this story, then I, then it's sort of like when I'm done with it, you know, when I, when I really done everything I can and can't think of one more thing, then I think, okay, this is it. It's, hmm. it's done for better or for worse this is this is as good as I can get it that's that's the conversation I often have with myself you may Mm. want this to be better but this is where you are now so this is where the story is and this is as good as you can get it I hear that reflecting kind of the tone of what you said about um your writing style earlier it seems like you have a lot of, I don't know if it's self-acceptance or a lot of peace with the process of writing and just kind of, just even that idea, oh, this is as good as you can get it, so here it is. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sort of a release or no pressure that you're putting on yourself. Well, you've caught me at a good time, right? The book has just come out. <laughs> you know, I think it's really easy to be like this when your book has just come out and people are interviewing you and everyone, you know, you feel like at the top of the world, even if it's a very small world, you just feel really good. Um, but, you know, two years ago, I was in, in, a, in the dump. I just thought, well, you know, this may be it. I may not publish a book. And um, I need to make peace with that. But the only way I can make peace with with that is to to write. You know, I actually get a lot of pleasure from writing. And Mm. it's taken me a long time to just accept that. But for me, the real pleasure is in the process. Um, I do like being published. I do like having my work read. Um, I do like talking to people about my work. you know, lovely to have all this attention, but I also really get a lot of pleasure just from sitting down to write. And when I get distracted by all the other stuff, you know, and it's, I'm not going to lie, you know, sometimes I'll look at people's Facebook feeds and I'll just think, wow, they are, they are writing so fast and they are doing so well and I will never be able to, you know, do that or Look at her. She just got interviewed by so-and-so. No one even cares about me. I mean, every writer goes through that. But Mm -hmm. I think, you know, I think as much as you can create your own little bubble world Mm -hmm. for writing where you're working on your stuff and you're meeting with your writing friends and you're doing something that gives you pleasure um, and you're feeding your writing in some way, you know, starting a podcast and talking to writers about their process, Whatever you do, um, it can it can really take away the sting of all that other stuff, right? Mm. But I, you know, there's been there have been many many times where I thought about giving up um, because I wasn't getting the kind of success I in my head thought I deserved. You know, for my novel. 
wasn't published. I was I went into a funk, and for six mm. months I thought I'm not going to write. I'm just going to watch Law and Order like everyone else. And I watched <laughs> six months of Law and Order. SVU. <laughs> yep. And um, let me just say I haven't watched Law and Order for the last three years. I kind of mm. went off it, but you know, right after that I had to go through this period of you know being in a funk. And that happens to me occasionally, and I think it happens to everyone. I mean, I don't know. Some people won't tell you it happens to them because they're just too cool or they have no feelings, I don't know. But, um, you know, how can you not be in a funk when your work gets rejected? But, you know, then you think, well, this is one of those things where there's no guarantee you can work as hard as you want and still not publish. So. I have to really talk to myself about what it meant to be a successful writer. But again, you know, I kind of feel like I'm talking about this from this very different place than I was in two years ago. Because two years ago, this book wasn't out. So, you know, I, I, I do think it's hard. And I do think the self-talk is hard. And I think you have to find ways to make life enjoyable and make mm-hmm. your writing enjoyable. That has nothing to do with being published. So I have this little game. Um, it's uh, called Find the Writer. Mm-hmm. And it is based on things that I picked up through the book. And I'm trying to figure out if you have done um, any of these things. So you can just say yes or no if you like. If you want to elaborate on it, feel free to do so. Mm-hmm. First question. Were you in a band? No. Have you ever caught a fish? No, I've watched someone catch a fish. Do you like fishing in general? No. Yeah. I think it's boring. Have you ever owned a ferret? No. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever drop out of grad school at one point? No, but I wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever smoked cigarettes? Yes, and okay. I enjoyed them, every single one of them. <laughs> and they come up a few times in a few yep. stories. I was like, hmm, I'm noticing something here. I haven't smoked in uh, over 20 years now. Um, have you ever been a flight attendant? No, but I wanted to be one. Okay. And do you have any naked stories? I actually don't, thank God. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I think my characters lead far more exciting lives than I will ever lead. And that is totally fine with me. You've been listening to an MFA and an MP3. Behind the Pearls music is by UK artist Redvers West Boyle. You can find him on SoundCloud and you can find me on Twitter at Behind the Pros. If you want infrequent email from me, please text the word pros to the number 22828. The show is hosted and produced by Keisha Whitaker, that's me, from a clothis. That is an office inside a closet in Pennsylvania. Until next time, listen, learn, and write.